I've been to Israel about seven times. How many of you here have been to Israel? Could you raise your hand just for a second? Okay, good, good. The chosen people. Um, we're going to, over the next several weeks, take you to Israel in the best way. No flying, no cost, no jet lag. Uh, we're going to try to recreate the situation. Some of us had face to face there by visiting key places in the land. It's a holy land because of the uh, one who was birthed there and who's going to return there. It's set apart for special redemptive purposes. And so we're going to traverse the land, travel through it, and try to derive from each of the spots we'll examine a very uh, practical, singular life principle with which you could associate that particular geographic place. And we're going to do this, uh, we're going to call this series Life Lessons from the Holy Land. And we're going to do that, this by showing you some video and then some still shots. And before we begin, I want to uh, tell you that Nathan Kimbrough and our media department is responsible for what you're about to view. Nathan came with us to Israel and videoed uh, hours and hours of footage. And so you're looking at it right now. We're grateful to Nathan and the whole media team for helping us to visualize the land. We're going to talk about Beersheba tonight, and it is the southernmost city in ancient Israel, and hence you've probably heard the expression, from Dan, that would be in the north, to Beersheba, southernmost city in ancient Israel. There's about 144 miles between Dan and Beersheba, and so you can cover uh, the whole land of Israel, north to south, as you can see, in just a few hours. It doesn't take long. Uh, Beersheba is located in an area called the Negev, uh, or the Negev Desert. It's a Hebrew word which means arid because it reflects the climate of the area. It's a desert climate. It's warm to, well, mostly hot. In the summer, it gets to be about 110 degrees, but in the winter, interestingly, at night, it could get down to be about 30 degrees. Uh, Beersheba is located about 75 miles southwest of Jerusalem and about 28, so we'll round it off, 30 miles southwest of Hebron or Hebron. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's the place where many patriarchs are buried. Uh, Beersheba is a pretty significant place in Israel. It is the seventh largest city I know that's a little hard to discern as you watch these pictures of ancient Beersheba, but it's really populated today by about 200,000 people. has a major university, a major medical center, a place of thriving industry, aerospace industry is there, petrochemical industry, lots of engineering. Most of the uh, permanent residents of Beersheba today uh, are Jews, and they hail from Ethiopia and Russia. They're emigres from Ethiopia and Russia. You may be surprised to know that there are black Jews, and they come from Ethiopia, and then others from Russia. And because uh, there are so many Russian emigres in Beersheba, 
It is the second largest center of wrestling, Greco-Roman and other forms of wrestling in the Holy Land, and I'm sure you came here to find that out tonight. Not only wrestling, but because of the numbers of Russian emigres there, and because this activity is so popular even today in Russia, uh, it's uh, one of the major chess centers in all of Israel. In fact, there are more chess grandmasters per capita in Beersheba than in any other city in the world. Yes, and that includes Alvin, Texas. Chess, they play. They have a soccer team, football they call it. They play in a 14,000 seat uh, stadium. Uh, They have an opera and a ballet. They have a major art museum. I share this with you because um, as you read the account, and we will, of Beersheba in the Bible, uh, it's a little hard to imagine from whence it has come. Uh, Abraham was there when he lived a nomadic existence, but it's really developed uh, quite a bit since then. Uh, You know, Beersheba is the home of the first Russian astronaut. His name is Ilan Ramon, and he perished in the Columbia disaster. I take time to point that out because that one hit pretty close to home, didn't it, for those of us here in the NASA community. In modern times, Beersheba uh, was occupied by the Ottoman Turks, and then it came into the hands of the British. And when Israel was declared an independent state in May of 1948, Beersheba was then occupied by the Egyptian army. But the first prime minister of Israel, his name was David Ben-Gurion, saw the very strategic importance of Beersheba. He knew it was, you see, vital for Israel's security, and so he sent in the 82nd Battalion. They surrounded the Egyptian army, and after centuries, Beersheba was once again in Israeli hands. I can't tell you what a significant event this was. You know, the expression from Dan to Beersheba is more than just a geographical epithet. It has tremendous psychological impact for my people. It means, once again, we're in possession of the land uh, which Almighty God promised to us unconditionally through Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and which he ratified in many other places in the scripture. I think Ben-Gurion realized the psychological significance of Beersheba as much as the military significance of it. And so when it was finally taken over by Israel early on in 1948, Leonard Bernstein, you perhaps know of him, the famous composer-conductor, Uh, He conducted the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra. It was in Beersheba. In November of 1948, they played a special concert for the uh, Israeli army who took Beersheba back. And so the ancient southernmost part of Israel was once again after centuries in Jewish hands. 
Well, we first read about Beersheba in the first book of the Bible. It's Genesis and chapter 21. And I refer you to it. If you have a Bible, let me give you a moment to locate it. If not, you can find one in the seat back in front of you. Help yourself to it, please. Genesis 21 is what we'll consider. And as you turn to it, I'll give you a chance to find it. Don't rush. The two main characters of this episode, which took place in Beersheba, their names both start with A. One is Abraham, Avraham, and the other is, uh, you might say, Abimelech, but we would say Abimelech, but we'll go with uh, the easier pronunciation. You got Abraham and you got Abimelech. And Abimelech is identified as a Philistine. Once again, as you're finding your place, let me just uh, share a little sidelight. Because of the description of Abimelech as a Philistine, some criticize the Bible as being historically inaccurate because they will point out to us that the Philistines were a seafaring people probably from the area of the Aegean Sea who came into the land of Canaan much later, about 800 years later than the Genesis 21 account. The Philistines were the perennial enemies of uh, uh, folks like David. You know, he was always fighting with the Philistines. Goliath was the Philistine, for instance. You know, David took care of him, uh, and he was a Philistine. So critics of the Bible say this is historically inaccurate. Uh, it describes Abimelech as a Philistine, but centuries before there were Philistines in the land. Well, let me just give... A simple explanation, and though it's simple, doesn't mean it's not accurate. It could be true and simple at the same time. Folks, the Philistines were a seafaring people. Couldn't they have come into the land at different times in human history? Who said there was one migration? Where's the evidence of that? It's just a generic title for mysterious seafaring people who came into the land, who knows for what reason, looking for a better place to live. So I think the explanation is, in Genesis 21, we have earlier seafarers who came from the Aegean uh, and crossed the Mediterranean and landed on the coast of what we now know to be Israel. And then later on, there were later seafaring people, the Philistines who lived in David's day. And so once again, folks, it seems to me that those who are so quick to criticize the reliability of the scriptures seem to tell us more about themselves than they do about the Bible. They're going out of their way, aren't they, to disprove the Bible? I wonder if it's because if it's true... You better turn to the God of the Bible while there's still an opportunity. Well, all right, now back to the text. Genesis 21, take a look at verse 22. It came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Wow, that's a good thing to hear. This Philistine, this, 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 Gentile, this, this guy who doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob somehow sees the evidence of his presence in the life of this character named Abraham, this foreigner, this sojourner in the land. Now, therefore, verse 23, swear to me here by God, 
that you will not deal falsely with me. Oh, my goodness. Why would he say? That just seems to be out of the blue, so out of context. What do you mean? This is how you make friends? Swear to me. Give me your word. You won't deal falsely. What do you mean? As if Abram ever did or would. He did. See, they're in the land. Abraham comes into the land from Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. He did it because God told him to do it. He said, go to the place. I'll tell you about it. You just go. And if you go, I'll bless you and your descendants, and I'll give you the land. Abraham, by faith, goes. He sojourns in this land. He had never been there before. He has a he's different language, different culture, different everything. He gets into the land, and he hears about these people, these, 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 these pagans, these... I'm sorry, these Gentiles. <laughs> you got to make do with these goyim. They're different. They worship millions of gods. They eat funny food, stuff like that. They don't have a good sense of humor. <clears throat> Present company excluded. So, so he wants to protect himself. He has his wife with him. What's her name? Sarah. She's good looking. All Jewish gals are good looking. And so he's concerned that this pagan king is going to take advantage of him in order to get her. So he says what? She's my, oh, she's my sister. So under false pretexts, Abimelech uh, is about to take her as his own and finds out not to do this and that Abraham had lied to him because she is, in fact, not Abraham's sister, but Abraham's wife. And that's why he's saying what he's saying now, requiring that Abraham swear not to do this stuff again because, you see, he has observed that this mighty God is with him. And he observed that this great God is with him in spite of him. What kind of a covenant, what kind of a partnership do they have that this mighty God would be with him in all that he does in spite of all that he is? He's a liar. And yet this God seems to be providing and protecting and all the rest. And so he says, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. And while he's at it, he throws in future generations, nor with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, baloney. What kindness? All right. He throws, it's Middle Eastern stuff. This is how it works. According to the kindness I have shown to you, you shall show to me to, and to the land in which you have sojourned. So Abraham is at this point considered to be just someone passing through. So that's the basis upon which Abimelech approaches Abraham. He wants him to swear not to lie to him again. Folks, it isn't so much that he respects Abraham. In fact, he doesn't trust him. What he respects is the evidence of an almighty God with him in spite of him. You know, it's as if Abraham was being living proof of a loving God to a watching Philistine. And so the Philistine doesn't respect Abraham, but he sure is beginning to respect Abraham's God. You know, folks, God protects his kids, doesn't he? Did you know if you're one of God's kids, you're invincible? 
Do you know you're immortal until it's time for you to die? You bet, but, 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 but the time for your uh, departure is not arbitrary or whimsical. That's what's so good about it. It's right on time. It's not too early. It's not too late. If you're one of God's kids, nothing can take your life. He could call you home. And when he calls you home, it may seem premature to some of us uh, who are witnesses to it, but it's never too early and it's never too late if you're one of God's kids. Nobody, nothing can take your life. He could simply say, all right, come home now. I got reasons for it. So Abraham is protected in spite of himself now. And so Abraham said, verse 24, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. So Abraham thinks, I got a good opportunity now. This guy is beholden to me. Sure, I'll swear to him. I won't lie to him again. Okay, I'm sorry. Give me a break. I won't do it again. Oh, by the way, there's a small matter of a well. But you know, it's not a small matter. What do you think the most valuable natural resource is in this part of the world? How are you going to survive as a sojourner? You know God gave it to you, and he wants you and your seat to have it in perpetuity. It's not a temporary deal, but you can't be there without water. So Abraham constructed a well. But apparently Abimelech's guys took it over. So Abraham says, you know, there is this matter of the well. Your servant seized it. Verse 26, Abimelech said, well, I don't know who's done this. You know why he said, I don't know? Because he's a politician, that's why. I don't know. I don't know. You didn't tell me. I didn't hear of it. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant, a, uh, a brit, we call it, a brit. They made a covenant. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place, there you go, Beersheba. And now you know how it got the name, because Be'er, Be'er Sheva, that's how we say it in Hebrew, Be'er Sheva, Be'er means well, and Sheva means of seven or of the oath. Be'er Sheva, well of the oath, or well of the seven. And that's where we got the name. Now, folks, Abraham was promised, he and his posterity, the land of Canaan. But he doesn't yet possess it. He's new here. But here at Beersheba, in Genesis 21, he receives, for the first time, permanent rights to a well. This is a huge manifestation of the faithfulness of Almighty God, who didn't spell all this out beforehand. He told Abraham what to do. Abraham obeyed. And now it's up to God to be his supply. And God is able to work through even the likes of someone like a Philistine king, Abimelech. And so Abraham now has his first permanent foothold in the land that God promised to him and to his descendants. So verse 32, 
they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree is the emblem down to this very day of the modern city of Beersheba. You see him all over the place. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. What's significant about the tree? Oh, folks, planting a tree represented Abraham's commitment to permanence in the land in keeping with God's promise. Abraham is literally putting his roots down. I know the world is on the verge of trying to pluck them out, but it will not succeed. It cannot succeed. It is a dangerous thing to try to pluck Israel out of the land. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. You fall into the hands of the God who gave it. It's dangerous. So the tamarisk tree literally means that Abraham, by faith, is sinking his roots into the land. He's indicating symbolically his determination to stay put. And not only uh, did he plant the tree, he also referred to God in a way God in the Bible had never been referred to until now in Genesis 21. He refers to him as the everlasting God, El Olam. Nobody in the Bible has ever referred to God that way yet. El Olam, El, a form of the divine name, Olam, everlasting. It's a specific reference to the eternal faithfulness of God. Uh, Abram is remembering God's everlasting covenant, and he is clinging to God's everlasting faithfulness to back it up. And so he refers to God here as El Olam. And so now at this point, I want for us to identify There are many, but one, just one life lesson from this place in the Holy Land, from Beersheba, it is this. Folks, if you belong to God, he will draw people to you so that you can point them to him. That's the life principle I'd like for us to identify, if you don't mind, with Beersheba. If you belong to God, just as By faith, Abraham did. If you belong to God, he will draw people to you just as God drew Abimelech to Abraham. Why? So that you can point them to him. Don't you see? What our church stands for is not just a a motto. It's, It's the Great Commission to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. And can I repeat it one more time? If you belong to God, He will. This is his doing. He intends to draw people to you so that you can point them right back to him. Abimelech saw something in Abraham, and he came to him. He said, I perceive that God is with you, and that's the reason why you and I can be assured of blessing. It's not so much because of us. It's because God determines to distinguish himself through us. He will bless us, not because we deserve it, 
but because he is going to get other Abimelechs to notice and to say, I perceive there's something different about you. Tell me about your life. And then we get a chance to tell them about the difference the Lord Jesus has made. And so a king of the Philistines here at Beersheba came and sought out a child of the king of kings. And that God intends to repeat in every generation and through each of his kids. Why did Abimelech come? Well, he saw the difference God had made in Abraham's life. I don't want to confuse you, but if I can jump over to the New Testament, you see, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's really new, new. God made him new. So new, in fact, that the old has passed away and new things have come. And if it's true, people notice it and people are drawn to us. And then we have to tell them about the one who made the difference in our Lives. I think it's all the more remarkable that Abimelech saw living proof in Abraham's life and sought him out because, you see, Abraham was so imperfect. He was a liar. He lied to Abimelech. What a terrible thing when an unsaved person has to rebuke us for our lack of integrity. That's exactly what happened. And yet it seems to be the case that one does not have to be perfect, does one? in order to give evidence of the perfect one. We're imperfect, but we can still point people to the perfect one. And this is God's intent, to make such a difference in us that though we be imperfect, people can still see him in us. It's his intent for us to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Well, Abimelech was watching, and he saw a rather ordinary, fallible man, but he also saw that a very extraordinary God was with him. If you belong to God, he will draw people to you so that you can point them to him. We're not sinless, but neither are we sonless. And even those of us who have sin, if it be forgiven in Christ Jesus, can point others to him. So let me tell you a story. Something happened to me uh, a few weeks ago. I went to a large hardware store in the area to purchase something. I purchased it. It was paid for and packaged. I took it out to the car. I was walking to the car in the parking lot when I realized I don't think I paid full amount. I looked at the receipt and sure enough, I had two of this particular item, but was only charged for one. Well, I went back into the store. And I remember uh, it being an awkward moment because I went in to where it says exit. You're not supposed to, you know, it just opened. And so I wasn't thinking, so there I am. And now I don't know what to do. So I'm looking for an employee. And I found this young uh, woman. And I knew she worked there because she had the store a tire on. And so uh, she said, could I help you? And I said, yeah, I, I just made a purchase, but uh, I think I underpaid. And she looked at me like I was from another planet. <laughs> and she said, what? And I, so I repeated myself. And, and she said, wait a second. L- let me see if I got you right. You were just here. You just made a purchase. And 
we, you're correct, undercharged you, and you came back because you want to pay the rest of what you owe? And I remember saying, yeah, yeah, that's it, you got it. And she thanked me in the course of our transaction three times for my honesty. I just want to thank you on behalf of the store. I want to thank you for your honesty. I want to thank you for your honesty. So we finished our business. I went out uh, the right door this time, uh, walked to the parking lot, got in my car, and I wasn't too far out of the parking lot when I realized, oh, have you ever had this experience? You don't have to, I'll answer it for you. Sure you have. You've missed an opportunity. And you realize it after you missed it. And you go, oh, oh, I should have told her. Ma'am, could I tell you something? There was a time in my life when there is no way I would be back here in your store. You think it's weird? I would have thought it was weird. There is no way. I would have justified it on some basis. You know, you're like a major corporation. You're making all kinds of profits off the common man, you know, and all the rest. You know, this is my stimulus package for the day. Whatever. I would have. But I should have told her, but ma'am, something happened to me. No, someone happened to me. I've been living in God's world up to, in, to a certain point apart from him, and then I finally realized I couldn't have life in a meaningful way as long as I was separated from the giver of my life. And I was because I had sinned against his righteous character and commandments. And when I accepted what Jesus did for me on the cross and asked him to come into my life and forgive my transgressions, wow, much to my surprise, he did. And that just changed me. And I just don't feel like I have the need to cheat your store, though your store is probably cheating me. <laughs> because I'm different now, and I just want to live in a way that's pleasing to the God who expended his own blood in my place on a cross. I felt really, 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 really bad that I gave that wonderful message to me alone in the car. You've had that experience. But then I thought about Beersheba. And I thought about, you know, if I belong to God, I do. Then like Abraham, though I be imperfect, it's still the intention of the perfect one to draw people to me so that I could still get a second chance at telling them about the Lord Jesus. When you think about Beersheba, think about Abraham. Not sinless are you, am I, but not sonless are you, am I. Not perfect, but we can still give evidence of the perfect one. If you belong to God, I promise you this is the last time I repeat it until next week. If you belong to God, he will draw people to you so that you can point those very people to him. Isn't that good? And it's all his doing as he was with Abraham and Beersheba. So he intends to be with us in Houston, Texas and wherever else we may be. So Lord Jesus, 
We're so grateful that you're not just the God of the second chance, third and fourth. Oh no, much more. You're the God of all grace. That means your willingness to forgive our sin is not numbered. It's, it's, it's in a different category. It's covered by grace. So where our sin certainly abounds, your grace superabounds. We see it with Abraham at Beersheba. Well, our world, ours, Lord, is filled with Abimelech-type people. Uh, living apart from you, seeing, sensing, observing, watching, and of course they are. It's a watching world. Thank you, of course. You're real in our lives. How could it be that you, O oh infinite one, would take up your abode in our life and someone not see? When it happens, would you give us a, an alertness, a spiritual alertness to look for that as an opportunity to point those very ones to you? Father, you've given us lives that demand the question. Help us to be ready with the right answer. Thank you so much that if we belong to you and we do by your grace through faith in your shed blood, then it is your intent to draw people to us. It's for your glory so that we can point them to you. This is our desire. This is the great commission. Thank you for letting us be part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.